You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, and unafraid witness. Thank you for listening. Let's pray. Let's pray. So, Father, we do look to you right now. And, God, we are weak, desperate, needy people. Whether we see it or not, we are. We are. We need you. We need you. We need you to to supernaturally turn our eyes to you. We need to see your glory. And that will only be done by the power of your spirit working in this place among us in our hearts. So God, we pray, would you please manifest yourself. Manifest yourself to us in this place. Speak to every heart here. Show us your glory and your greatness, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, please be seated. Good morning, Harvest. Good morning. Good morning. My name's Nathan. So uh, happy, thrilled to be here with you this morning. And if you have your Bible, uh, please go ahead and open it up to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, verse 46. If you uh, don't have a Bible right now, if you've left it at home, please uh, just feel free to slip up your hand. Ushers will be up and down the aisles and would love to get a Bible in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, please uh, accept that as our gift to you today. John chapter 4, verse 46. And as you're turning there, let me ask you, have you ever asked God for a sign? You ever ask God for a sign? You ever been like, Lord, I just need a sign. Just give me a sign. You ever do that? You ever like wake up in the morning and you're kind of tired and you're like, Lord, I don't know whether I should go to work today. I'm tired. Just give me a sign. Show me. Lord, maybe, maybe if you put a robin redbreast in the tree outside, then that means you want me to go to work. Give me a sign. Then you go outside and there's no robin redbreast in the tree and you say, oh, you don't want me to go to work. It's a sign. You ever do that? You ever ask God for a sign? Well, as we consider signs from God, in the Gospel of John, we have to keep this in mind, all right? That signs from God are never, ever, ever intended to point us away from God to trees or to birds, but rather signs from God are always intended to point us back to God so that we would find all we need in God. Let me say that again. Signs from God are always intended to point us back to God so that we would find all we need in God, including this, especially this, life itself. Life itself. And that's a sign from God that we are going to see together this morning, a sign of life. A sign of life. Now in John chapter 10, Jesus said this. He said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus Christ came to earth and he died on a cross so that we would not be void of life any longer, but instead we would be filled with life, that we would have exceedingly more life, that we would have life that is beyond measure, that we would have a super overabundance of life. So what exactly is that life and where does it come from? Well, Jesus said this in John chapter 17 up on the screen. Jesus said this. He said, he said, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, sometimes we think about eternal life as just meaning a life that goes on forever or something that happens after our bodies die. But that's not how Jesus defined eternal life. Jesus defined eternal life as knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. Not just knowing about God, but knowing God. Not just knowing about Jesus Christ, but truly knowing Jesus Christ. This is the essence of all true life. The essence of all true life is this. It is knowing God and being filled with with joy in him. That is the essence of all true life. It is knowing God and being filled with joy in him. And listen, there's nothing better than that. There's nothing better than that because that is true life. But here's the question. How do we lay hold of this life? Well, maybe you've heard that phrase before, seeing is believing. Ever heard that? 
Seeing is believing. And in the physical world, that's true. We see something. I see this chair, and I believe this chair exists. We see, and then we believe. But in the spiritual realm, it's completely the opposite. Because in spiritual matters, believing is seeing. In spiritual matters, believing is seeing. And believing is how we lay hold of true life. We can think of it this way. That believing is the seeing that leads to life, obedience, and joy in God. Let me say that again. That believing is the seeing that leads to life and obedience and joy in God. Therefore, therefore, if we want to be a people whose lives are characterized by true life and obedience and joy in God, then we must believe this. And this is our first point. Our first point, you could jot this down. Here it is. Uh, I must believe, I must believe that Jesus is my greatest need. I must believe that Jesus is my greatest need and I must seek him. I must believe that Jesus is my greatest need and I must seek him. John chapter four, verse 46. You ready? You ready? Here we go. Here we go. Verse 46. And so he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. So Jesus enters into Cana where we told he had made water wine. That was his first sign that he did in the gospel of John to manifest his glory. He made water wine. And then we're told about 15 miles down the road from Cana is a place called Capernaum. And in Capernaum, there is an official. Now that means that there's a man who lives there who is employed by Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas is the same Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. So he's an official. That means that he is a very powerful man. Uh, that means he's a very wealthy man. And we also know this about him, that he is in the midst of a deep family crisis because his son is so ill. Have a look at verse 47. Verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Now notice that this official, this man heard that Jesus was in Galilee. He heard that he had come into Cana, even though he was 15 miles away in Capernaum. This is because Jesus is causing quite a stir. People are fired up about this Jesus, so much so that they're talking about him in Capernaum when he arrives in Cana, 15 miles away. It'd be kind of like you're checking your Twitter feed and you see that Justin Bieber just rolled into Hamilton and your mind is blown. You're like, what? And so you jump in your car and you drive there right away because that's what you would do, right? <laughs> maybe not, maybe not, Okay. All right, but these, these folks are fired up about Jesus and Matthew chapter four tells us why. Matthew chapter four tells us that he was going throughout all of Galilee and he was teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And then notice this, he was healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So there is a stir about Jesus. People are excited about Jesus. People are flocking to Jesus. And when this official hears that the Jesus who heals people, he's only 15 miles down the road that way, he jumps on his horse and he takes off to go and find this Jesus. Have a look uh, one more time at verse 47. Verse 47 says, when this man uh, heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son. And so this man races off to Cana to go find Jesus. And then when he finds him, he asks him to come and heal his son. Now that word asked, it sounds very casual, doesn't it? Uh, it kind of sounds like Jesus uh, is there and the man kind of uh, comes over to Jesus and says, hey, would you, would you please heal my son? It wasn't casual. The word asked here actually implies begging. It implies pleading. The scene more looked like the man came up on his horse and fell to his knees before Jesus. And he's like, please, you're my last hope. Please, my son is dying. Please come and heal him. I know you can. Please, please, please. He's begging him. He's pleading with him. And so how does Jesus respond to this broken, suffering father? Maybe not how you might expect. Have a look at verse 48. Verse 48, so Jesus said to him, 
unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. So unless you, man, see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now, interestingly, the you here is not singular, but rather it's plural, meaning that, yes, Jesus is speaking to this man, but, but in a greater way, he's actually speaking to the crowds that are following him around, waiting for him to do another sign. That's who he's speaking to. He's saying essentially this. He's saying, you Galileans, unless you see me do signs, you will not believe that I'm the Messiah. And that's a problem. Because for them, seeing was believing. But in spiritual matters, believing is seeing. So Jesus is warning them sternly about the danger of their unbelief because their unbelief was keeping them from seeing the Messiah, which was keeping them from eternal life, which was keeping them from joy in God. But how does this apply to this broken, suffering father? Well, verse 47 tells us. Look again at verse 47. It says, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to, notice, come down and heal his son. He's asking Jesus to come down to his house. So what does that imply about what he believes about Jesus? Well, it implies that he believes that Jesus has to be physically present at his house in order to heal his son. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, Lord, I'm not even worthy to have you under my roof. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say this. He doesn't say, Lord, just, just speak the word. Just speak the word and my son will be healed. You don't have to go there. Just speak the word. He doesn't say that. And the reason he doesn't say that is because he doesn't believe that. But consider what is actually happening in this moment. In this moment, this man is standing face to face with God. He is standing face to face with the Lord God Almighty. He is looking into the eyes of his creator. He is looking into the eyes of the one who spoke the universe into existence. And not only that, but who has sovereignly drawn this man to himself through the illness of his son so he could have this conversation with this man right here, right now about his unbelief. How awesome is that? And why has Jesus done this? Here's why, here's why. Because he loves this man and he wants him to believe and receive eternal life. Now imagine somebody runs into an emergency room and they have a sliver in their finger, and they have an arrow sticking out of their back, okay? What would you say is the most pressing issue of the day for this person? What is it? It's the arrow. It's the arrow, right? But what if the doctors run over, and they say, whoa, look at that sliver, and they get tweezers out, and they pull the sliver, and they put a, a Band-Aid on it, and they send the person on their way home? Not great, right? Not great. What if someone kind of limps into the emergency room and they have a scrape on their face and they have a raccoon attached to their leg that it's biting them and it has rabies? What is the most pressing issue of the day? It's the raccoon. This person has a serious raccoon issue, right? But what if the doctors run over and they say, wow, it looks like you have a, a scratch on your face from like an animal or something and they kind of wipe the person off and send them home. Not great. Likewise, Jesus Christ is not content to just heal this man's son. He cares about this son. He wants to heal his son, but he wants to go after the most pressing issue of the day. And the most pressing issue of the day is this, this man's salvation. And not only his salvation, but the salvation of his son as well. Because in this moment, this man, this father, is believing that Jesus is his son's greatest need because the son is sick but he's not believing that Jesus is his greatest need. And I wonder if we believe that here this morning. Do you believe that Jesus Christ is your greatest need right now? Do I believe that Jesus Christ is my greatest need right now? And maybe you're thinking, well, greatest need, how exactly? 
Well, let's talk about two ways that Jesus Christ is our greatest need right now. Here's the first way. This is the first way that Jesus is our greatest need because we need salvation. We need salvation. You see, our sin has, has separated us from God. All of us have sinned against God and our sin has separated us from God. But God has made a way that we can be reconciled back to him. And it's through his son, Jesus Christ, coming to earth and dying on a cross so that we might be forgiven. Do you know him? Have you placed your faith in him? Because Jesus Christ is our greatest need. He is the greatest need of every soul in this room right now. Because all of us need to be saved in him. But not only that, not only that, we need to be saved in Jesus Christ, but we also need this, we need to be satisfied in Jesus Christ. And here's what I mean by satisfied. I mean this, I mean this, that all of us, all of us here today, we have this irresistible craving on the inside of us. We have this hunger. We have this thirst to experience something that is so much bigger and greater than ourselves. And we go scrambling in the world trying to fill up our souls because we have this hunger. How did it get there? Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has put eternity into man's heart. Meaning, meaning that that craving, that hunger, that thirst to experience something so much greater than ourselves has been placed there by God that we might turn to God and experience satisfaction in God. Psalm 16, verse 11, such a wonderful verse, says that in his presence is fullness of Joy in the presence of God is the fullness of joy that we all long for, that we all want, that we all crave. And if we truly believe that, if we believe that the joy that we seek is only found in the presence of God, then this is what we'll do. We will go to God. We will go to God. We will seek God. We will seek the joy we crave in him. But here's the problem. The problem is, is that we don't believe Psalm 16 verse 11 as we should. I don't believe Psalm 16, verse 11, as I should. And so what do we do instead? Here's what we do. We pull ourselves up to the table of the world and we just start to eat. We start to fill ourselves and, and we fill our souls with small things until we are full and there's no room left for God and we are bloated and unsatisfied and miserable. John Piper puts it this way up on the screen. He says this, he says, if you don't feel strong desires for the manifestation of the glory of God, it is not because you have drunk deeply and are satisfied. It is because you have nibbled so long at the table of the world. Your soul is stuffed with small things and there is no room left for the great. So let me ask you, when you are tempted to pull yourself up to the table of the world and start to stuff yourself with the things of the world, what is it that you are typically filling yourself with? What is it that you are typically filling your soul with? What is it? Is it stuff? Is it Latest, greatest, is it buying stuff, selling stuff, trading stuff, looking for stuff, searching the internet for stuff, shopping for stuff? Is it stuff? Is it food? Is it entertainment? Movies, television, social media, video games? Is it, is it some hobby that has just kind of taken over? Is it some secret sin? What is it for you? Because here's what we need to see. That when we are pulling ourselves up to the table of the world and we are stuffing our souls with, with the things of the world, we are literally allowing idols to rob us of our joy in God. 
We are allowing the idols of this world to steal away our joy in God. We are forfeiting the joy that could be ours because of the choice we're making to stuff our souls with the things of this world. So what's the solution? Well, the solution, of course, is nothing new. The solution is repentance. The solution is that that we have to turn away from the table of the world. I need to turn away from the table of the world and learn how to fight for my joy in God. We need to push ourselves away from the table of the world and keep ourselves hungry, so to speak, and, and learn how to fight for our joy in God. And we fight for our joy in God by believing We fight for our joy in God by believing, Psalm 16, verse 11, that the joy we actually crave and seek and hunger and thirst for can only be found in the presence of God. And if we truly believe that, if we truly believe it, if we do, then we will seek God. We will seek him in word and in prayer. And as we do, we will grow in our love for him. We will will choose to get alone with God. And, and, and we will grow in our love for him. We will pursue intimacy and we will pursue fellowship with God and we will grow in our love for him. And Psalm 16 verse 11 will prove true in our lives and we will find what we need in him. But it begins with this, believing. I mean, really believing, believing. So let me ask you, are you in a place in your life right now where if you're honest, you would say, you know what? I'm not really seeking the Lord as I should. Are you in that place right now? Because I think we can all be in that place, can't we? I can be in that place. Are you in that place right now? What should we do? One word, belief. We need to believe. We need to believe Psalm 16, verse 11, that in his presence and in his presence alone and nowhere else is the fullness of joy that we seek. And if we believe, then we will seek God. But maybe you're thinking, but I have trouble believing that. So do I. So do I. So what should we do? What should we do? Here's what we need to do. We must pray. We must pray. And we must ask the Spirit of God to open up the eyes of our hearts to believe. And God loves to answer that prayer because believing is the seeing that leads to life and obedience and joy in God and that glorifies him. He loves to answer that prayer. Therefore, therefore, if we want to be a people, if we want to be a people whose lives are characterized by true life and obedience and joy in God, then we must believe that Jesus Christ is our greatest need and we must seek him. And that's a great spot for an amen. Amen? Amen. All right. All right. Well, that leads us to our second point. Okay. Second point, which is this. You can jot this down. If we want our lives to be characterized by true life and joy in God and obedience, and I must believe this, I must believe that Jesus speaks the truth. I must believe that Jesus speaks the truth and I must obey him. I must believe that Jesus speaks the truth and I must obey him. Now have a look at verse 49. Verse 49. Jesus has just confronted this father as well as the crowd concerning their unbelief. And the official said to him, verse 49, sir, come down before my child dies. He's begging him. He's pleading now to check out amazing verse 50. Okay. Amazing verse 50. Jesus said to him, go, Your son will live. Now consider it. This man is in a place of total desperation. He's come to Jesus as his absolute last hope. He's believing with all his heart. If I can just get him to come down to my house, he's going to heal my son. But now Jesus is saying to him, go home. Go home without me. I'm not going with you. Go home. Your son will live. And so how does this man respond? Is that the point where he says, okay, I thought this was going to happen. How much? How much is it going to cost me to get you to, to, to come down to my house? He's trying to bribe Jesus at that point. Maybe he takes a different approach and tries to kind of flex his authority a little bit and says, hey, 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 do you know who I am? Listen, 
Unless you get on the coming down to my house plan right now, I'm going to have you dead by the end of the day. Is that what he does? Does he try to threaten Jesus? We'll have a look at verse 50. Look at how he responds. It says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. The man believed Jesus, and then he obeyed Jesus. He believed Jesus, and then he did what Jesus told him to do, and he left. His obedience, see this, his obedience was completely rooted in his believing. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and then he went on his way. Now imagine somebody came up to you and said, hey, hey I just really want to bless you. And so I am going to deposit $5 million into your bank account with my mind. So stand back. Here we go. Done. See you later. And they leave. I want you to be honest, okay? Honest. How many of us would kind of secretly reach into our pocket, grab our phone, and be like, well, I'm just going to check my bank balance here. How many, just me? Just me? Come on, come on. Is it just me? And why would we do that? Why would we do that? This guy said he put money in, into our account with his mind. Well, what's harder to believe? Someone who says he can put money into your bank account with his mind or someone who says he can heal your relatives from a distance? because that's what Jesus is calling this man to believe. And then suddenly he just, he just believes it. He just believes it. Now, how did, how did that happen? How did he go from begging Jesus to come down to his house to just believing that his son is healed? How did that happen? Well, verse 50 tells us. Notice what it says. It says, Jesus said to him. Jesus said to him, and that changed his heart. The word of God changed his heart. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes through hearing, and hearing through what? The word of Christ. Faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So as we hear the words of Christ, the spirit of God is opening up the eyes of our hearts to, to believe, which gives us spiritual sight. As we hear the words of Christ, the Spirit of God is working, opening up the eyes of our hearts to believe, which is giving us spiritual sight, which again is why we can't take credit for anything when it comes to advancement in our spiritual walk. We can't take credit for anything. We can't even take credit for believing. It is all God. It is all God. He does it all, and he gets all the glory for anything good happening in us. And as this man hears Jesus say, go, your son will live, something starts to happen on the inside of him and he begins to believe that. He begins to see that his son will live and he leaves. A question. How fast do you think he rode home? How fast do you think he rode home? Like, do you think he got on his horse and galloped away, leaving Jesus in a big cloud of dust? Or do you think he kind of took the reins of his horse and just kind of started at a snail's pace, sort of walking home? How many people think he galloped? Let's take a gallop poll, okay? How many people think he galloped? All right, All right well, let's have a look. It tells us how fast he went, verse 51 and 52. 51 says this. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Verse 52. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him... Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So does that tell us how fast he went? Verse 52 says that his servants came to meet him. He meets his servants. He asks them what time his son started to get better. They say, yesterday, at the seventh hour, that means one o'clock, yesterday. Did you catch that? So how fast did he go? He went at a snail's pace. He went really, really slow. He's there with Jesus at one o'clock in the afternoon. He only has 15 miles to get home. He gets on a horse and then, where'd he go? Well, consider, consider the state of this man when he's on his way to Jesus. He is desperate. He is anxious. He is fearful. He doesn't know what he's going to do. Now consider his state 
on the way home from Jesus. He is believing. He is calm. He is at peace. And apparently he's in no hurry at all. So we don't know where he went or what he did. The text doesn't tell us, but the text does tell us this, that he believed Jesus and therefore he obeyed Jesus and he left. He went home. It's a sign from God. And I want to look at a couple of other signs right now. Let's throw that first sign uh, up on the screen. You can tell me if you've ever seen this before. Anyone ever seen that sign before? You seen that sign? Okay. What's that, what's that sign mean? Anyone know? It means electrical danger, okay? Electrical hazards stay away. And so if we believe that sign, what do we do? We stay away, right? If we believe the sign, then we obey. Let's have a look at the next sign. Anyone ever seen that sign before? What's that mean? Radiation, radiation. So what happens if we believe that sign? We stay away, right? If we believe the sign, then we, then we obey. How about this sign? This sign says, caution, this sign has sharp edges. Do not touch the edges of this sign. And if we believe that sign, then we've just totally missed the joke. I thought that was pretty funny. But anyway, here we go. Here we go. Here's the point. If you believe the sign, you obey. Likewise, this man was given a sign from God. Jesus said, go, your son will live. And the man believed. And because he believed, he obeyed. Because he believed, he obeyed. So three questions now for us right from this text. Here's the first one. In what area of your life are you currently not obeying Jesus? In what area of your life are you currently not obeying Jesus? Here's the second question. What are you currently believing that is keeping you in that place of disobedience? What are you currently believing that is keeping you in that place of disobedience? Here's the third question. What is it that you need to start believing to move out of that place? What is it that you need to start believing in order to move out of that place? So three questions again. In what area of your life are you currently not obeying Jesus? What are you currently believing that is keeping you in that place of disobedience? And what do you need to start believing to move out of that place of disobedience? And I want you to know this. This is kind of a visiting speaker that God has been using these three questions in my life to reveal again Again, my sinfulness and, and areas in my life where I desperately need to grow and change, which doesn't always feel good, but it is so good. And I want to zoom in on that last question. What do we need to believe in order to move out of that place of disobedience in our lives to a place of obedience? And I want to look at something that Jesus says to every soul here this morning, something that he says to each one of us that we all need to believe, something that applies to all of us, to each one of our situations in this. It's this. I want to give you the paraphrase, and I'll point to the text. Here's the paraphrase. Jesus says this. If you love me, then you will obey me. And if you obey me, you will be blessed. This is what he says to us this morning. He says, if you love me, then you will obey me. And, and if you obey me, then you will be blessed. Maybe you're thinking, well, where exactly does he say that? 
I want to look at two places. Here's the first place. We're going to stay in the Gospel of John. John chapter 13 up on the screen. Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet. He's given them a powerful object lesson. And then he says this to them. He says, uh, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, which would be the most disgusting job possible, you also ought to wash one another's feet. And then a few verses later, he says this, if you know these things, blessed are you if you, what does it say? Do them. If you do them, he's commanding his disciples to love each other. Radically, he's commanding his disciples to humble themselves, to, to get low, to, to, to serve one another in sacrificial love. He's saying, if you know these things, which of course now they do, and of course we do as well. He says, if you know these things, then blessed are you if you do them. Notice that the blessing follows the doing. You may be thinking, well, blessed how exactly? Well, God can bless however he chooses. He can bless however he chooses, but here's the best way. Here's the best way. John 14, 21, up on the screen. John 14, 21, Jesus says this. He says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him. And look at this, and manifest myself to him. What an awesome promise. He's saying, if you love me, then you will obey me. And if you obey me, I'm going to manifest myself to you. I'm going to manifest myself to you. And if we believe, Psalm 16, verse 11, that in his presence is the joy that we are after, and if we believe what he just said, John 14, 21, that as we obey him, he's going to manifest his presence to us, if we really believe that, then we'll obey. But it's so easy to say we believe. That's not hard work. It's so easy to say that we believe Psalm 16, verse 11, and we believe John 14, 20. It's so easy to say, but we need to actually look at our lives and ask ourselves the tough questions. Like, is the kind of believing I have, is it leading to obedience? Is the kind of believing that I have, is it leading to sacrificial love for my neighbor? Does the kind of believing I have, is it leading to evangelism? Does the kind of believing I have, is it leading to making disciples? Because it's so easy to say that we believe. But what kind of believing do we have? We can kind of think of it this way, that in every heart, in every heart here today, we have these two different theologies. We can throw that up on the screen. We have these two different theologies. We have a spoken theology. It's what we say we believe. But then we have this lived out theology and it's actually how we live our lives. And they're not the same. They're, they're not the same. There's a gap between those two things and that gap is occupied by something called unbelief. So we have a spoken theology where we would say, yes, I believe Psalm 16, verse 11, that in his presence is fullness of joy. I believe John 14, 21, that as I obey him, he's going to manifest himself. I believe that, and we do. We do believe that on some level. But then there's the way we live our lives. And the further away our spoken theology is from our lived out theology, the less joy we will have in God. But praise the Lord, the reverse is also true. The closer our spoken theology is to our lived out theology, the more joy we will have in God. So here's the question. How does that gap close? How does that gap narrow? And here's how it narrows. One word, believing, believing, believing. So let me ask you, let me ask you, are you in a place in your life where if you're honest, you would say, you know what? There is a gap between my spoken theology and my lived out theology. There's a gap there. And if you're anything like me, you're like, it's big. But I want it to be like that. I want it to be like that. I want my lived out theology and my spoken theology to be the same thing. What do I do? We must believe. 
We must truly believe. We need to believe John 14, 21, that as we obey Jesus, he will manifest his presence to us. And, and maybe you're thinking, I want to believe that so bad. I want to believe that, but I'm just really struggling to get there. What do I do? Again, we must pray. We must pray. We must ask the spirit of God to open up the eyes of our hearts to believe. And he loves to answer that prayer. He loves to answer that prayer because believing is the seeing that leads to life and obedience and joy in God. And when that's happening in our lives, God gets glory. Therefore, therefore, if we want to be a people who are characterized by true life, true life and obedience and joy in God, then I must believe that Jesus speaks the truth and I must obey him. Which leads us to this. It's our third and our final point. If I want life, if I want life, a life that is characterized by true life and obedience and joy in God, then I must believe this. I must believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I must believe that Jesus is the Messiah and I must point others to him. I must believe that Jesus is the Messiah and I must point others to him. Look again back at verse 51. Verse 51. As he was going down, this is the, the man, as he's going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering so he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now look at verse 53. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus said to him, your son will live. So this man is heading back home. He's heading to Capernaum. He's on a collision course with his servants. He meets up with his servants, and then he asks them kind of a strange question. He says, hey, what time did my son start to get better? And so why did he ask that? Here's why. Because he knew it was at one o'clock yesterday that Jesus had said to him, go, your son will live. And so here's what he's really asking his servants. Here's what he's asking. He's asking this. He's saying, did it happen at one? Did, did it happen at one? Tell me it happened at one. Tell me it happened at one. Did it? Did it happen at one? Here's why he wants to know that. Because he wants to hear more about what God did. And don't we all? I mean, that's why we love to watch baptisms. That's why we love to hear testimonies. That's why we love to hear glory stories. We want to feed our souls on what God uh, has done and what he is doing. Now, check this out. Check this out. As the servants say to him, yesterday at one o'clock, the fever left him, what do you think is playing over and over and over again in this man's mind? Well, verse 53 tells us. Look at verse 53. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So in this moment, his mind is filled with the words of Jesus. His mind is filled with the word of God. Your son will live. Your son will live. Your son will live. It's on an audio loop in his heart. And in this moment, the Lord chooses to do a new thing in him. Look again at verse 53. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed. In the glory of this moment, with the word of God ringing in his heart, he suddenly believes that Jesus is the Messiah. He, he realizes that yesterday he was standing face to face with the Son of God. It's like, pfft, awesome, awesome. What an incredible moment. And then he literally, literally, he walks through the door of his house. I mean, imagine that's your testimony. I'm kind of uh, on my way home and I'm just about to get home and then I get saved and then I walk through the door. That's what's happening. And imagine, imagine the scene. Imagine the scene. He walks through the door of his house. There's probably tears running down his face, just amazed that, that Jesus is the Messiah. There's his wife. No, no, he embraces her. And then, and then he looks over and he sees his son who is standing. When he left, his son was, was dying. Now his son is standing. He sweeps his son up and he sits them down and explains what really happened. Because from their perspective, the son was sick and dying and then suddenly he just started to feel better. They don't know that Jesus did it. So he tells them that Jesus did it. Look again at verse 53. Look what happened next. It says, he himself believed and all his household so as he begins to explain to his family who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, they believe he's the Messiah and his family gets saved as well. 
What an awesome day. What an incredible day. His son is dying. His son gets healed. He gets saved, and then his whole family gets saved as well. Talk about an awesome day. But the day's not over yet. There's still more. There's still more. Look at verse 53 again. It says that, that he himself believed and all his household. And that word household doesn't mean just his family. It means his servants as well. And so everyone is gathered around as he's explaining who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And his servants believe and the spirit of God moves through that whole household and brings eternal life everywhere. Are you kidding me? How awesome is that? As this father stands pointing to Jesus Christ. The spirit of God moves and saves the whole household. And don't think for a second that can't happen today. But here's such an important principle for us. If we believe that Jesus Christ is truly the Messiah, and if we love him, if, and if we believe he is the greatest treasure in the universe, if, then we will not be able to help but point others to him. We won't be able to help it. It's kind of like when you discover a new restaurant and you're like, wow, this place is amazing. The food is so good. It's reasonable. What's the first thing you want to do when you leave? You want to tell someone else about it, right? And you don't want to just tell them about it. You, you want them to go and experience it. And you don't want them to just go and experience it. You want them to go with you and experience it because you want to watch them enjoy it because as you see them enjoy it, you enjoy the place even more. That's because when we see someone taking joy in what we take joy in, it only increases our joy. Likewise, if we truly believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and if we truly love him, and if we believe he is the greatest treasure in the universe, then we will not be able to help but point others to him because we will want them to enter into the same joy in God that we have in God. In 3 John, the apostle John, the same man who wrote this gospel said this. He said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. As John heard about his, his, the people he had discipled, how they were loving Jesus and obeying Jesus and worshiping Jesus, that just increased his joy in Jesus. So how does that apply to us? Here's how it applies. When Jesus is commanding us, every one of us here, to point others to him, when Jesus is commanding us to make disciples, he is also commanding us to enter into our greatest joy in him. Have a look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, up on the screen. Jesus says this, familiar text. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Look at that promise. I am with you always. Is Jesus, what is, is, he, is he promising his omnipresence in this verse? Is that what he's promising? Is he saying, I am omnipresent, so I am everywhere anyway, and so I will be with you because I'm there anyway. Is that what he's saying? That is not what he's saying. He is promising to manifest his presence in a special way. He's promising to provide all the grace we need through his presence. He's promising to manifest himself. And when he does that, when God shows up and God is at work, then we get filled with joy in him. And he says that will happen as we busy ourselves with the business of making disciples. So let me ask you, are you pointing other people to Jesus Christ? Are you involved in evangelism? Are you making disciples in some way? Because listen, if you're not involved, then you are literally forfeiting joy in the Lord. Why is it that people get so fired up when they go on missions trips? 
We see that all the time. Why are people so fired up when they go on missions trips? Well, here's why. Because they're sharing their faith. They're pointing people to Christ. They're seeking to make disciples. And God is showing up and he's manifesting his presence and he's moving and he's working. And people come back and they're in awe of God. And and they're so fired up and it's so encouraging when we see that. But what if that became the new normal for us? What if that became the new normal in our lives, whether we are on a missions trip or whether we are here in Canada? Because that can happen. That can happen. It'll happen through this one word, believing, believing. And as the worship team comes up, I want to ask you, are you in a place in your life where you really aren't pointing people to Jesus Christ as you should. You want to be pointing people to Jesus Christ, but you're just not pointing people to Jesus as you should. And I think, I think I can speak for all of us when, we, when I can say all of us need to grow in this. Agreed? I need to grow in this. Do you need to grow in this? Okay, all right. So what should we do? Here's what we must do. We must believe. We must believe Matthew 28, 20, where Jesus says he will manifest himself to us as we believe, as we seek to make disciples. And maybe you're thinking, well, I'm just, I want to get there. I'm just struggling to believe that, that he's actually going to do that. So what do we do then? We must pray. We must ask the spirit of God to open the eyes of our hearts to believe, to believe. And he loves to answer that prayer. He loves to answer that prayer because believing is the seeing that leads to true life and obedience and joy in God. And that brings him glory. Therefore, therefore, if we want to be a people whose lives are characterized by true life, and obedience, and joy in God, then we must believe that Jesus Christ is our greatest need, and we must seek him. We must believe that Jesus speaks the truth, and we must obey him, and we must believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and we must point others to him. Amen? Amen. All right, well, let's pray. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you so much uh, that we can hold your word in our hand. Who are we? Who are we that we were born in this country? We didn't choose this, that we could, we could have access to Bibles, that we could stand here with your word on our laps and open it up and read this, this account of what actually happened in this family where you saved the whole household. That is awesome. And God, we know you can do that today, today. Because here's the reality. You just have to speak the word and it will happen. That's it. You just have to speak the word. And so God, we are praying. We are praying for our own hearts right now. God, would you, would you please open up the eyes of our hearts to believe? God, would you increase our believing? Would you increase our faith that we would lay hold of, of that which is true life and that we would have lives of, of obedience to you and we would have true joy in you, that we would see your superiority to every idol in the world? God, we need you to do a work. And as I need you to do a work in me, Lord, change our hearts, we pray. Change our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.